You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Tananarev Du is an American book award-winning and essence best-selling author of 16 books, including Blood Colony, The Living Blood, The Good House, Joplin's Ghost, and Devil's Wake. She's also won an NAACP Image Award and British Fantasy Award. She teaches black horror and Afrofuturism at UCLA. Her new novel is The Reformatory. Thank you for joining me, Tananarev. I'm, I'm glad to be here. This book begins with a dedication, uh, so I'd like you to explain the research that you went into to write the dedication, where the dedication comes, and because this is an incredibly personal book for you, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is personal, and it's an unexpected book. I uh, haven't published a novel in many years, especially a solo novel, Um and my my mother passed away. This story goes back a ways, so bear with me. But my mother passed away at the end of 2012. And in 2013, my family got a call from the Florida State Attorney General's office letting us know that there were researchers who thought that my mother had a relative buried on the grounds of the Dozier School for Boys in Mariana, Florida. I had never heard of the Dozier School for Boys in Mariana, Florida. I had never heard of Robert Stevens, uh, who was named uh, as her uncle, who potentially might have remained on, on those grounds. But they were they were reaching out to get permission to begin exhumations from family members. And, you know, so, OK, uh, my dad and I, my dad's a 89. He's a civil rights lawyer. <laughs> I hear you, dog. <laughs> it's OK. He's a, a civil rights attorney who practiced in the 60s. And, you know, we grew up in a civil rights household. My late mother, Patricia Stevens, do was also a civil rights activist. And we had written a whole civil rights memoir together, which was why it was especially surprising to me that I had never heard of Robert Stevens, because it seemed to me that if she had known, she would have told me about this situation, even if she didn't want it in the book. There was another juvenile on her mother's side. This is her father's side. There was another juvenile on her mother's side who was executed by the state as a juvenile um, during my grandmother's childhood. So I thought they were calling about that. Finally, some closure and information about that, I thought. But this was an entirely different young man, entirely different circumstances, two different sides of her family, which, by the way, just goes to show you how vicious the criminal justice system was for Black families in Florida during the Jim Crow era, that she would have two juveniles, one executed and one who presumably was stabbed during state care at the Dozier School for Boys. Um, after my dad and I went to the meeting that was was planned by Erin Kemmerly, who, who's a forensic anthropologist with the University of South Florida, she's worked in war-torn sites like Kosovo, and they had brought her in to use their sonar equipment to try to find where the bodies might have been buried. There were so many children, I'll call them. They were 21 and under. So they were all, in those days, they were all considered juveniles. Um, there were so many children buried <laughs> at this facility in the woods out at a place they called Boot Hill, but no grave markings. 
the only crosses out there had been put out there by Boy Scout troops in their honor, I guess, fairly recently, now that I think about it. But that place was open between 1900, 2011. Ultimately, I think they found 55 sets of remains, including Robert Stevens. And from the very, now this, this would happen later, but at the first initial meeting, what really struck me was talking to survivors. It was a segregated facility, uh, white campus, black campus, but all of the students were disciplined in what was called the White House, which was a, a whipping shed. And the first hand to my face testimony I heard from uh, survivors at that meeting, I mean, in some of the worst cases, uh, which I tried to honor in the story, was that he had to cancel visiting day with his family because he was in the infirmary after a whipping because this, the whip had so embedded the fabric into his back that the doctor had to remove it. Okay, this is these are children. These are juveniles. And even though I'd written one nonfiction book with my mother, I quickly dismissed the idea that I wanted to delve into this as a family memoir. Yeah, Robert Stevens died in 1937, first of all. I didn't know of any living people who knew him. And all I all I had was a story about his stabbing. And someone was, another um, prisoner there was charged with stabbing him. But I don't know what led to it. I, you know, I don't know the circumstances of it. And frankly, given the record keeping there, I don't even know what's true and what isn't true. But I'll just take it at face value. That's what they say happened. Um, but I knew I had to write something. And, you know, another reason I didn't want to write nonfiction, frankly, is because, ew, what a terrible story uh, for fiction. I, that's that's not something I would want to read, you know. And so I asked myself, how can I honor the spirit of Robert Stevens and the experiences of, of all these young men, survivors and those who didn't go home? in a story um, that would also sort of embrace my mother's childhood era, since this was her uncle. And I knew the 50s from, from research with her. So rather than setting it in 1937, which is when Robert Stevens actually died, I set it in 1950. I made him 12 instead of 15 uh, because I wanted, A, to make him um, a more sympathetic character since some of us have attitudes about teenagers, you know, and that's a very special age. You're right at the cusp of adolescence. You're you're beginning to see the world for what it really is, as opposed to what your fantasies have been. That's when the, the veil starts to sort of lift from our eyes when we're about 12, 13 years old. So that's where coming of age stories come from. And, and I wanted this to be a coming of age story, as well as a loss of innocence story. But most importantly, I wanted to give Robert Stevens a, a different story. Not, I mean, yes, I'll honor what happened. I, I talked ex extensively and even written extensively about what really happened in blogs and, and my author's note. But for the purposes of this novel, this is an alternate history. While at the same time, honoring the violence there with ghosts, who are witnesses to the murderous past of this facility. Um, you know, sometimes children die of illness, but I mean, I, I think it, it went beyond neglect. 
with the Dozier School based on um, accounts I've read and stories I've heard <laughs> and anecdotes that people have repeated. So again, it's not nonfiction. I created a fictitious facility called the Gracetown School for Boys. And my fictitious town that I've written about in several other stories, uh, including in The Wishing Pool, which we talked about last time, but even before The Wishing Pool, I was writing about Gracetown and my other short story collection, Ghost Summer. Once my parents moved to upstate Florida many years ago, like around the year uh, 2000 even, or 1999, I decided that I, I wanted to use rural Florida as a setting. I grew up in the Miami suburbs. What do I know about rural Florida? But that was my mother's heritage. And that was the heritage of a lot of Black Americans coming from the rural South and then spreading out all over the country because of slavery and the escape from Jim Crow and the Great Migration. And in a lot of ways, the reformatory is kind of a great migration story. When you ask yourself, well, why would a family leave the South? <laughs> And go somewhere they don't know anyone, where they have to start all over. Well, since you ask, here's the reformatory. So I think it's 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 a rebuke and also um, further examination of what happened at the, the Dozier School for Boys with the hope that people will learn more. It's a rebuke of mass incarceration and juvenile justice, which are still issues today. I mean, there's really nothing that would change in some situations if your child kicked a kid at school you could still find your child locked up and you're, you're paying lawyer's fees because that's how criminalized black and brown children have gotten in 2023, not in 1950. So it's in conversation with now. <laughs> um, it's a time capsule of a period in Southern history, especially Florida history, right before the civil rights movement. So set in 1950, it's 10 years before my mother's first arrest in real life for sitting in at a lunch counter when she was a college student. It's five years before the death of Emmett Till that would bring so much attention to the problem of lynching in what would have been contemporary South in 1955. Like people like, I think had thought it was like the bad old days maybe. I don't know what people were thinking, but Emmett Till, since he was only a 14 year old boy, Lynched over a lie, by the way, um, his his um, accuser passed away only recently, bizarrely, and and told people that she had she had made up some of the things she said about him, which I anyway, don't get me started. But it's a it's a it's a period of time that's pre civil rights, but uses my parents' stories and research I did, not just about the Dozier School, although there were a lot of memoirs about the Dozier School when I was, I read them, I interviewed survivors, but I also researched Florida in that era. A wonderful book that actually um, Gwen Graham, who is the daughter of former Senator Bob Graham, suggested to me uh, called uh, Devil in the Grove by Gilbert King. And it's an examination of one of Thurgood Marshall's cases that shows his extraordinary nature as a defense attorney, but is also such a horrific outcome that I don't think we could ever see a movie about it because it, it far from a happy ending. It has a, see, that's the thing about the real history of Florida. It, the, the Dozier School was so bad that even in a horror novel, I felt like I couldn't write so many of the stories that I had read about because it would be too triggering. And horror is entertainment at its core. So you want, I wanted to pay homage to that violence, 
an homage to that history, but do it through at least somewhat of a fantasy lens so that the violence in the book isn't specifically racist violence. I think that was important. It's not lynching as horror because that, again, is very triggering. Um, and and there is there is some violence, and I can't I can't back away from that. Um, but I really tried to be careful about the way I dispensed it. It had to be in small enough doses that I could handle it. First of all, as a mother of a young son, as someone who was related to Robert Stevens, it had to be small doses, even just for me. But I might have a high, higher tolerance than some readers. I could not wait to get away from that to like the the haints, the ghosts. What's it like when a real boy and a, or rather a living boy and a haint try to have a friendship? You know, that kind of, that's the fun part of writing the novel. The rest was difficult difficult work. But based on the responses, I think people understand what I was trying to do, and I'm really grateful. You know, one of the things about this book is that it's a very richly textured and dense historical novel with lots of, you know, accurate feeling, period detail, and accurate feeling, period characters. Yet it reads like a page-turning thriller of half its length. And, And as I was reading this, I just couldn't believe I was reading it as fast as I could, as engrossed as I was. And so I'm wondering, was there something special that you did, or was that just the the way it came out? You know, I guess it's practice, practice, practice. Um, I've Yeah, I've been experimenting with historical fiction for some time now, since... Uh, my second novel, My Soul to Keep, had historical chapters with my immortal character. And my agent at the time put me up for The Black Rose with the Alex Haley estate, which was about Madam C.J. Walker. And I said, well, I don't write historical fiction. And he was like, of course you do. <laughs> I mean, look at the historical chapters in My Soul to Keep. So the, the Black Rose was my first experience with straight up historical not even horror. I mean, it was just a it was basically a historical novel. Now, the page turnery part, honestly, just knock on wood. I'm so glad you feel that way. I can tell you it didn't feel that way to write it. I can tell you that right now. Uh, it took the longest it's ever taken me to write a book. It was more than seven years. I mean, the research began 10 years ago. So it was not speeding by in any way, shape, or form. And if there, and I'm glad you feel that way because it did turn out to be a pretty thick, hefty book. But if that is the case... It's because I primarily am a horror writer, more so than a historical fiction writer. So while I will give you enough of the history to set you in the place, and in this case, I really did want to teach. I wanted people to know, you know, there was an NAACP organizer named Harry T. Moore and his wife Harriet who were blown up by the Ku Klux Klan on Christmas Day, by the way, is when that happened. Some of the first martyrs of the soon-to-come civil rights movement, you know, that would really coalesce in years later. Uh, but I wanted to show people standing up. I wanted to show that that not everybody was just like one character says, ducking and hiding during this period, because even though Jim Crow was monstrous and it included systems, including the sheriff's department that haunts Black communities to this day, frankly, you know, when you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, hello, <laughs> there's a lot of the roots here in Jim Crow, and even earlier, you know, um, many would say. So I wanted to do all that, but at heart, 
I love a page turner. I love, I mean, and, and whatever it is, you know, I wish I could, I had a, a magic formula. I could just say, oh, just do this. And it's a page turner. I really, especially because this book took so long. I, and I read those patches, passages so many times over and over and over again. Like you, you stop writing, you go about your life, you go back to writing, you reread. And I spent a lot of my time rereading and it's, you know, your eyes are crossing. You can't even tell if it's entertaining. I was like, oh, is this opening section and Gloria's voice? It just feels so dense and I don't know. And so all the hand wringing and um, I didn't know. I didn't know what I had. The first indication I had that someone might love the book, okay, love it, was when it got coverage from a film company, you know, called SK Global. And that's just when they hire someone because people in Hollywood don't read. So they hire people to read. And the person who was hired to read, and it was a manuscript. It had not even been sold yet. And the only reason I got it to them that early was because Mitchell Kaplan, my 10th grade English teacher, uh, works for Missouri Kaplan. Um, and they, his sister works, Marcy Ross, works at SK Global. So Mitchell said, what do you got? You know, what do we need to look at? And I was like, well, uh, you know, I haven't written a novel in a long time, Mitchell, but I have this manuscript. And I, so I just gave him the manuscript and the, the coverage was glowing. It was the most glowing review of the book. In fact, I thought I, I didn't even know what to make of it because I thought it could be an outlier. Like this, this is just this person's jam, you know, <laughs> like, but I, I have to say now that the book has come out and the reviews have come out in the New York times and the Washington post and USA today and NPR, I'm starting to think, huh, this book might be pretty good. <laughs> I don't know. Is this the best book I've ever written? I don't know. Um, but it, it might be, it certainly is the best critical response I've ever had upon publication, uh, the most sustained critical response I've ever had. So that's very encouraging. And many people, including Stephen King, might I add, Stephen, I was in the middle of an interview, IG Live, similar to this situation, uh, except people were leaving comments on our Instagram. You can see instant comments. And while I was in the middle of the interview, an instant comment floated up. Stephen King is tweeting about your book. <laughs> so I could barely focus as I went to check and see. And, and he basically said kind of the same thing. He said, uh, hold on, I have it here on my uh, Instagram page. He said, you're in for a treat. The Reformatory is one of those books you can't put down. Tanana Reeve do hit it out of the park. And as you say, considering how much history there is, how much teaching I was trying to do, that people think it's a page turner and experience it as something you, once you stop one chapter, you can't wait to start the next one. I love that. And I had that experience when I was listening to the audiobook, you know, and, and for me, that's the only way I can, I can hear myself with fresh ears is to hear an actor's interpretation of my story. And the children's voices that Janice Abbott Pratt does are unbelievable. So I'm hearing Rob, Robert in my ear. I'm hearing Blue in my ear. It's so immersive to listen to audio. And there were many times I said, well, I just listen. I don't want to go to it through fat, too quickly. I'm just going to listen to one or two chapters, but I couldn't stop. And I think it's because maybe over the years as a horror writer, I've developed a habit 
of ending one section with a kind of a resolution, but that opens up a question about the next section. You know, one thing you said earlier on is that you held back on the nonfiction horrible excesses. And, and I think one of the things that this suggests is it's almost in a sense uh, using the Lovecraft playbook of showing just the thumbnail of the of the monster and, and leaving the rest to the reader's imagination. And you do this very well in this book. And so talk about, especially in the, in the, the day of Mars is extremely striking because there are things that you could choose to show us that you don't. And, and I think that's a really good decision. Talk about, you know, um, using the reader's imagination to propel the horror story as far as the reader is willing to take it, but also propel the plot, too. Yeah, this is a, a dicey one. You know, almost any time, like, for instance, I can't think of the name of it, but there's a movie about three survivors of a juvenile facility. And almost any time you're talking about prison, jail of any sort, and content warning for listeners, but sexual assault is always a part of that conversation. It, I mean, a lot of people make a joke about it, you know, don't bend over in the shower, you know, that kind of thing. But the reality isn't funny at all. And sexual assault is very common. And it's also happening in juvenile prisons. And it also, there were people who survived the Dozier School who asserted that there was actually something that they called the rape room, at least as prisoners there, they called it that. So, and I don't know for sure, but it tracks in terms of statistics. It tracks in terms of other facilities. And in the book, Burning Down the House, uh, and into juvenile prison, I learned that most juveniles who are sexually assaulted within a facility are assaulted by guards, not by other prisoners. So that also tracks. But I knew from day one that I didn't want to get too close to that with Robert. And while Haddock, the, the warden, uh, whose name is Fenton Haddock and is an actual psychopath, uh, has definitely sexually assaulted many of those prisoners over the years, I was trying to sort of preserve Robert's innocence and kind of my own by keeping that kind of in the shadows. Like he can't quite wrap his mind around why it makes him so uncomfortable when Haddock is close to him or has his hand on his shoulder. There's just something that he can't quite name that feels off, right? And that's as far as I wanted to push it. So a careful reader might see that I created that character so that his primary sport in that is, is older adolescence. Uh, Robert is only 12. And, and and people do have, you know, predators do have preferences in terms of uh, size and age. So Robert is too young to be on his radar in that particular way. But I don't think it's spoilery to say that as a psychopath, this warden does keep trophies. And that's, you know, part of his problem is that he, he has a, a, a packet of photographs that gives him pleasure to look over. And Robert doesn't know exactly what's in those photographs, but the reader can guess 
uh, from Haddock's point of view. There are some chapters in Haddock's point of view where he addresses more what's happening in his shed on that mattress and that sort of thing. But that's Robert never sees that mattress. Robert is shielded from that. You know, one thing I love the way you used the hints in this novel, which is the the word for ghosts. Um, you do a really good job at developing the kind of the rules and, and revealing them to us. And also, it's really interesting to me that as horrific as some of the hate imagery is, it's never as terrifying as reality. <laughs> and I, that's right. obviously deliberate. And so talk about using uh, the, the supernatural as a way to talk about things that are worse. Yeah, that was my my deliberate choice was to add that fantasy element. And, you know, I often I teach my students, I consult actually for studios in terms of horror. And, and one of the things I talk about is the difference between lynching as horror and fantasy horror and why it matters so much, even if you're writing about horrific times. So, yes, I knew right away there would be haints. I knew right away that I wanted them to be scary. Definitely wanted them to be scary. I am not one for the gentle ghost stories. (laughs) You know, I mean, so I definitely wanted there to be scary moments with the Haints, but very specifically, and I was for years, literally, I was writing up to the point where Robert realizes, yes, this place, place is haunted by the dead, but one, they're not my biggest problem. And two, the fact that I can see the dead has real significance in terms of the meaning of life and the limitations of my understanding of the world. And there is more than this. That way, you might remember that. I was that I was, was a great up. line. It's a it's a difficult scene. It's the scene I knew I felt I had having heard the survivors tell their stories, as painful as it was for me personally, I felt I had to have that scene. And it would be the moment that kind of lifts Robert out of his experience, almost like a disassociation. And it might literally be a disassociation, actually. But the the impact of that disassociation is to realize that there's more than this. And he's able to take the knowledge that there's life after death, find hope in it rather than fear when he's confronted by human horror. And man, I could not wait to get that scene behind me. Uh, I I excerpted in in the Boston Review uh, in 2018 and talked a little bit about the book I was working on on way back then. So that's how long it took between um, then and now for it to finally come out to just to show you how how I labored over this book because it was not finished. I was really using every tool in the shed to try to uh, motivate myself to finish it. And and then there's a twist with the hate, which gave me an opportunity to explore something I had never really read in that way, which is what happens when living people try to have relationships with hates, right? So the 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 folklore around Gracetown in general, not just in this story, is that 
Gracetown holds sort of portals to magic, uh, ghost sightings, uh, creatures, things that are not quite of our world. And children are most susceptible to experience these things. It's not always just children, but a lot of the stories that have to do with Gracetown have child protagonists, which is how this ended up being my first novel, completely told from the point of view of children almost. Um, and in this case, I wanted to explore more deeply if you have a child who's sensitive to seeing ghosts and he's more sensitive than other children, what kinds of uh, pitfalls? I mean, we can all imagine the pitfalls, like you're trying to go to sleep at night. That's not fun. But what are the, also the opportunities? And that's what Robert ends up exploring in this story. Although I will say this, um, <laughs> the, it's not easy to have a friendship with a hate. They are from a completely different culture. And, um, you know, they don't have the same concerns we have. Their sense of time is very, di- and t- time and place are very loosey-goosey concepts to hates. Um, so bear that in mind is all I'm going to say. Uh, go ahead at your own risk <laughs> with your friendship with the hate. You know, Early on in the novel, you you talk about the the power of story, and at one point you say Mama had kept most of her childhood stories locked in her eyes, and I think that the power of story and telling the story and the the power that the control of story gives you as a human being is immense that we're all creatures of story. We create ourselves by telling ourselves a story about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so I think that talk about using Robert's sense of the power of story to drive the plot in the book, which I think is really uh, craftily done. Oh, you know, I haven't really given much thought to that. And you're the first person to bring it up. So let me even think about it. I mean, yeah, that that scene that was so difficult uh, for me to write in, in part was instigated by Robert's natural curiosity to hear a story. Now, unfortunately, the story he wanted to hear was about people running away. <laughs> so that wasn't a good look. <laughs> but it, it's just like, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, you know, kind of with a sense of wonder. Um, and there are other opportunities where storytelling as a distraction becomes a part of it. So I could get a twofer by having Robert listening to an episode of Dragnet to kind of lift himself like on the radio. Because I'm an old radio fan. That was like part of my unofficial research is that I listened to probably every episode of Suspense every episode of Dragnet, you know, anything that was on the radio that uh, Amos and Andy, not as many, but some of them, just to get a sense, even Amos and Andy, as racist as it was, basically white guys in blackface when it was on the radio anyway, there's a moment where that pulls him out of misery because they're laughing. And, you know, this is well-documented. Nelson Mandela apparently said that what kept him going was American comedy movies, you know, when he was in prison. So storytelling is distraction. I think that's one of the reasons horror is so popular right now is that we're living in precarious times and even horror stories are a, a more gentle time than turning on the news at this point but it also helps feed the survival sense when you when you engage with horror during hard times and during trauma or it can not to everybody but it can so robert 
intent and in Robert and his friend Redbone are, are making up stories together while they're roaming on this campus. So they're escaping in their heads, you know, while while they're going about their tasks. So the fact that the warden tells Robert, you know, stories are dangerous, stories can get you killed. I think, you know, he could be Ron DeSantis, frankly, you know, who's banning books in Florida, who considers stories dangerous. So, yeah, that attitude is not new. Uh, it's a Jim Crow attitude <laughs> and uh, it's having a resurgence, unfortunately. You know, one thing about this book, too, is it makes you realize uh, how bad the Jim Crow and even, you know, tort trending, you know, that was it, it was in many ways as horrible as a slavery, but without the, you know, uh, without the chains for the most part. And, and I think that this is a very powerful examination of how, you know, the 1950s regarded at by a significant number of Americans now as, you know, the prime flourishing of American culture were, you know, also there was a huge inverse and there still is. Yes. And this is the thing I really wanted readers to understand from my mother's stories about their activist days. Like, I suppose there were some families, if you kept your head down and kept your distance and didn't thrive so much that your white neighbors got jealous, which jealousy was like pretty much probably one of the number one causes of death for black people. Um, if you, you might have had a, a, a reasonable enough experience free of violence, free of terror, but for people like Robert's family, who was Robert's, his father was an activist who'd been chased out of town because of his union uh, organizing under the pretext of a, of a rape accusation, which is, again, uh, similar to Emmett Till's lynching. It wasn't rape, but, you know, um, supposedly lecherous behavior. And example after example, the Tulsa massacre uh, was sparked because supposedly a Black man acted lecherously toward a white woman. Or, you know, um, Rosewood, I believe, is the same story. It's like, so that and also it was the the charge in To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, which I wanted this book to be in conversation with because the Harper Lee book is from the outside in and this book is from the inside out, you know, a, a false uh, rape accusation case in the aftermath of it uh, on one level, even though a lot of that happens off stage, he's already gone when the novel starts. But I wanted to show the phone trees my mother told me about. This was how people kept each other informed, you know, before the internet. You 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 kept track of each other. At one point, when Gloria's pulled over by the police in a car with a couple of NAACP officials drives by, she's like, well, at least someone knows where we were. At least somebody saw us and knows where we were. Because you need that eyes on surveillance to keep people safe. And I didn't understand why my parents were so averse when I was in college to driving from Evanston, Illinois, where I went to Northwestern, to Lexington, Kentucky, where I had a newspaper internship. You know, it's a long drive, but I was a good driver. And I was kind of resentful that they were like, no, 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 your mother's going to drive there with you. Your father's going to drive back. That had to do A, with reality, but B, with their memories 
a young black woman driving alone on Southern roads? I do not think so. And sure enough, you know, while my mother and I were on that trip, we did have a police encounter I'll never forget. It was weird. You know, he, he the car had broken down and he did stop to give us a jump. So he did his duty. I'll say that. But he did not speak a word. Like I walked up to his window and said, oh, thank you, officer. I'm so glad. Would not look at me, would not speak. Got out of his car, jumped it, would not look at us, would not speak to us. Went away. And, and that memory and the memory of a Native American poet I met once who told me that she was once pulled over and the officer told her to climb out of her car on a deserted road and she just decided, no, she wasn't going to and she drove away. And I thought, oh my God, that is a courageous story. So it's like, and that story, by the way, is not from 1950. So <laughs> there are vestiges of this still left over. No black person wants to see the blue lights in their rearview mirror because you don't know who is in that car behind you. So and you and and what their day has been like, what their attitudes are, or what they think you did. So that horror still persists. That's true life horror. And yeah, there are pieces of that definitely in the reformatory because that's it's been a lived experience for generations. And I wanted people to understand this isn't something that just popped up with George Floyd. <laughs> this has been a lived experience for generations. And very courageous people in local communities were standing up to this behavior, which was literally terrorism. It was terrorism that went up to the sheriff's department, that went up to the mayor's office. My father, John Dew, who's 89, as a civil rights lawyer, was pulled over and taken to the office of the sheriff. He believes has something to do with the disappearance of Michael Schwerner, James Cheney, and Andrew Goodman, uh, the civil rights workers murdered in Mississippi that were the basis of a pretty bad movie called Mississippi Burning, precisely because, I say it's a bad movie, precisely because it does frame the FBI as just sort of the rescuers and heroes while the Black people were doing nothing <laughs> and just cowering. And that's not the truth. There were, there were places that stood up. I had a story like that from my own great-grandmother about... Uh, community of farmers who armed themselves and stood up. And those stories don't often have happy endings, but it happened because there have always been people who fought back. We don't know their names usually, but I wanted to say some of their names in the reformatory, Harry T. Moore, Elmore Jackson. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, Elmore Bryant, who was the first black mayor of Mariana, Florida. Um, my father, I honored by naming the civil rights attorney, John Dorsey. His, my father's name is John Dorsey Dew Jr. And Gloria is named after my late mother because she was an activist from the time she was in high school. And anytime I had to wonder what would Gloria do, I just said, what would my mom have done? You know, one of the things that makes a great novel great are the characters and the willing, the reader's feelings about being with any individual character in any individual scene and one of the things that's really just super about this book is I don't care who are with it even if some of the bad guys um it, it's a pleasure to read about them and I was thinking about like Mislotti any scenes that Mislotti <laughs> are in 
she is is just wonderful. And even, uh, you know, when we're talking about the bad guys, there's a character called Boone who's really very interesting. And so talk about creating characters on both sides of the divide that will capture the reader's attention, even if they're repelled. You want us to read about them. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you love Ms. Lottie. I loved her too. Uh, one of the things that kept inspiring me to write during the hard days, which was every day, was <laughs> imagining the final scenes and, and Ms. Lottie. Uh, I was already casting it with Cicely Tyson. I was so sad when she passed away uh, because she was my Ms. Lottie in my head. But she's named after my late grandmother. And my late grandmother was more educated than Ms. Lottie and, and not quite as country, I, I will say this. But she was a straight talker, like a lot of our grandparents are. And she had a lot of courage, like a lot of our grandparents did. So I, I, there are aspects of her house and where she kept the mason jar in her fridge and these little Easter eggs that frankly, not that many people are left who remember. Um, you know, I've, I've lost my mother, I've lost my her brother, my uncle Walter. So I was, Ms. Lottie was easy because I was just drawing on my grandmother's spirit. Some of the other ones, not as accessible. Uh, um, I, I give brief point of view to the social worker, David Lohman, uh, to show the mindset of a Northern uh, liberal who is an ally, but has limitations in his allyship, like all of the allies in this story. There are, there are limitations to their allyship, both because in real life, there are limitations to our allyship, but also because I didn't want it to be a white savior story where white people save the day, you know, which is often what, what we see, even if that was what happened, like in 12 years a slave, it still feels like a white savior story if Brad Pitt comes and saves the day. <laughs> so, so, and, and also, even though this isn't a young adult novel, Technically, there's no one who suggested it should be shelved with the young adult novels. It does have a young adult, like a 17-year-old girl and a 12-year-old boy. And one of the components of young adult fiction is that the kids figure it out. The kids figure, and I, and I really, I wanted to stay true to that. There's some, been some conversation in the TV adaptation that, that we need to bring in uh, the father, Robert Stevens, in a more significant way. And we're balancing how to do that without messing with that formula of the kids being the primary drivers of the action in the story. Now, Haddock, to go back to the side characters, I needed him to have a point of view because I wanted us to have as much insight into him and his history as possible. Um, not that I want necessarily anyone to have sympathy for him, certainly, but one of the things about slavery that people don't talk about is the impact of that violent culture where rape is commodified, where labor is forced on the white families that are a part of that system. Okay. So not that, you know, Crimea River, but not for nothing. That is not a normal way <laughs> to bring up your children. And um, so Haddock's grandfather was an overseer who used to slot, tie enslaved people to trees and beat them. So I wonder where he got that image from. Hmm. Now, it turns out he is actually a psychopath, but that couldn't have helped. It couldn't have helped. And uh, I wanted, of course, he's a monster. He, in many ways, is the central antagonist of the story. 
although I also wanted the system to be an antagonist, but you can't write, I don't think, I think it's difficult to write a novel where it's just the system as the antagonist. So I wanted to create a, a human monster as the antagonist, but at the same time, give him enough nuance that he doesn't feel like a cardboard cutout or like, oh, say, uh, I hate black people, you know, that kind of character. Um, so, so yeah, one of the things that kind of amused me, I guess if that's the right word, was giving him a more nuanced view of race relations than uh, the people around him. And the reason I believe that about him is because as someone who is a psychopath and who you know, a serial murderer. Um, he is outside of what we would call societal norms and does not, you know, he does not follow societal norms. So if he's not following societal norms in that way, why wouldn't he form his own opinions about the capacities of Black people? Or whether or not a woman who accused Robert Stevens' father of rape is telling the truth. Like, so that's, and it confuses Robert so much that someone who, as he calls him, is a master of lies will once in a while tell the truth in a way nobody else will. And on the other side, you write, if Joe Friday were real, he'd be chasing after Robbie right now because the judge said Robbie deserved to be locked up. Even Joe Friday, who never made a mistake, would be on the wrong side of justice in Gracetown. And I thought... <laughs> That was a really interesting observation, again, of, of where the characters measure up the stories they hear versus mm, the reality, reality they know. And I, I thought that was a brilliant way to, to bring that out. Well, I appreciate that. And yeah, they are very aware and discerning, you know, and that's enhanced by the fact that Robert can see ghosts and Gloria can see glimpses of the future. So they're a little more aware than the average child would be. You know, that's opened up like a level of awareness where you can sort of look at something like Dragnet. And I mean, she's not going to call it that, but it's what we would call now copaganda. <laughs> because he never made a mistake. And I'm telling you, I listened to every episode. Now, maybe I didn't see the, t all the I didn't see the TV episodes, but on the radio episodes, there was never a bad cop. And anytime there was an accusation that there was a bad cop, one time it turned out he wasn't really a cop. And the second time it turned out not to be true, as far as I remember. I may be misremembering, but but I, you know, I I listened and listened and listened for any indication that police could make a mistake. Any indication that the sometimes cops were, well, certainly not racist. I didn't expect that. Uh, I mean, to its credit, I think Dragnet avoided racism just by not including any black people, you know. So there were but at least there were no black criminals i'll give it that but they were like i mean literally i don't think any characters were meant to be or sounded remotely like they were supposed to be black uh, which in 50s radio actually is kind of a mercy i guess uh it wasn't pretty for some of the other uh, depictions of black people at that time but this is something that american culture has grown up with since dragnet and i chose dragnet intentionally because it's not the first police show but it is the police show that had the biggest societal impact. And in some ways, procedurals have been imitating it ever since, including that, that, that glow around policing where police do no wrong. 
I mean, there have been exceptions since then, uh, more recently, but for a very long time, that that was not a part of the point of police procedurals at all. Police were very smart. Son, you have so much to live for. Put the gun down was something we thought police said in real life. And maybe they say it in real life in the suburbs, but they do not say it in real life to a lot of Black people. You know, one of the things I really liked about this book was your sense of the supernatural. And I have to ask about one scene because oh, long ago I interviewed a fellow named Randall Sullivan who was a Rolling Stone writer. And he had become very interested because near where he lived there had been a Blessed Virgin Mary um, appearance. And he... Uh, so he decided to investigate who chose whether or not these things were real or not and wrote a book about it. And when I met him, he was in the middle of a religious conversion as a result of writing this book. And he had gone to Medjugorje. And one of the experiences of people who see the Blessed Virgin Mary is this idea of being able to run faster than they believe, so that they're almost flying. Interesting. In, in I had not known that. Oh, okay. Well, it, no, I've it, never heard that before, actually. He had that experience. Okay, um, well, I, I believe people when they tell me their experiences to my face, but I've never had one myself, to be honest. Uh, well, well, no, no, neither have I, but I thought it was very interesting to, to see that kind of motif repeated in your book. I wasn't sure if it was a deliberate call out to the Blessed Virgin Mary, you know, experiences, but just that idea of that uh, vision of the supernatural entering our lives. I thought that was really fascinating. Well, I I wanted to, really, I was hearkening back to African-American mythologies about days that we could fly, you know, which probably goes back to African mythologies about the days we could fly. But also because the protagonist is 12 years old and he reads comic books, you know, I wanted to also pay homage to sort of that childlike wish to fly. I remember having it very vividly. You know, it was my greatest wish to be able to just feel what it would be like to fly. And I think that's where those mythologies come from, because as children, we can almost remember what it feels like to fly for, you know, and I can't speak to it now, but I know it was a very deep drive when I was young. <laughs> so I wanted to give Robert that feeling, um, that uplift. And, and, you know, frankly, there's enough horrible stuff that happens in the book that uh, a little bit of flying is, is good for everybody's soul, I think. <laughs> well, you know, my take on it is, is that I felt like I was flying when I read the book. Oh, that's so great. I thought that your synthesis of the supernatural horrors and the realistic horrors and the juxtaposition of those two really did exactly what great fiction is supposed to do, is to lend our own eyes a new reality when we look around and see it. And I think anybody who comes away from reading this book will understand that there's more to actual reality than what we see. And that doesn't have to just be the supernatural. That can just be the things that people don't talk about and try to hide. 
the thing that it's secrets, it's mistaken beliefs, you know, it's a misunderstanding history. Like there is definitely more. There is a lot, lot more. And I think as adults, uh, we like to feel like we're done and we know it all and we figured it out, but we have not. <laughs> and um, yeah, so thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad the book had that that impact on you. I just I wanted to get it out. I wanted to be true to a childlike spirit. I can't write an entirely unredemptive horror novel. At least I don't think I have yet. It's to me, I mean, I can watch a movie that's unredemptive. I can go pretty dark with, with films. I am not as good at going too dark with books because they are so immersive and you are experiencing it along with the character or VR video games or any video games. Actually, I am terrible at dark, dark, dark. Nobody's going to survive everybody dies that I mean I'll watch that and there are some ways that's been done very effectively there's a movie called the dark and the wicked I watch over and over again that is very dark uh hereditary is very dark I that I can scratch that itch I get it I get why people like that uh sometimes it fits the way you're feeling in that moment just right but for me personally as an author I need a, at least that seed of hope or even more than a seed, like a sapling of hope or even a blossom of a tree of hope. Because to me, it's the hope that gets us through the horror, right? Even if the last hope is, okay, well, I'm going to take them with me then, you know, it's because that's what keeps you from just covering up your face and cowering. You have to pick up a weapon and fight. And that's what characters show us over and over and over again in horror. You don't trip and fall. Okay, if you want to die, you can trip and fall and lie there, curled up in the fetal position. But you're not going to last very long. Why don't you take a breath, gather your courage, and even if you don't understand it, fight back. <laughs> fight, fight, fight. That's, you know, I played that scene for my dad. I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a key scene in the book where my character of Gloria gets very frustrated with her efforts to work through the legal system. She's trying to get her brother out of this reformatory. They're very frustrated. And the family realizes they can't rely on the legal system to get Robbie out. And that scene is what I call the meeting. The meeting, even though I hate real life meetings, and I say this in every interview, but I really do hate meetings. <laughs> but in a horror movie, the meeting is my favorite moment. I'm like yearning for it. If there's three characters in a haunted house, they've all been experiencing different phenomena, but nobody's telling everybody because they think they're going to sound crazy or the kid tried to tell the mom, but they don't believe you. I hate that. I hate gaslighting. The moment where people let go of their egos, let go of what they think they know about the world, which is always what you have to do in a horror movie, and they start comparing experiences and come up with a plan that is what I love about horror movies. Because even if the plan doesn't work, it's not the point. We all die. The point is, what are you going to do to fight? You mentioned the TV series. I, I, as After reading this book, I thought, boy, this could make a hell of a movie slash TV series. Uh, who's making it? What can you tell us about it? It's still in the pitching phase. Um, we have... Uh, my English teacher, Mitchell Kaplan's company, Missouri Kaplan and SK Global, who've optioned it. And it's up on their website as in development. And, you know, as you always have to do with this phase, you have to go wider and pitch it to buyers. So for that, you know, do we attach a director? Do we attach a showrunner? 
Do we attach a strong executive producer whose name will get someone's attention? Um, you know, you have to add these elements. Sometimes people add cast members, although I don't know that that's what this needs. Uh, I can't think of any child actors who would be big enough names to really help get us over that finish line. <laughs> so I'll think about that. But yeah, we're still in the pitching stage. And, and you know, I don't know what will happen in 2024. But the book is performing well. It's getting a lot of notice. And fingers crossed. The new novel by Tanana Rifdu is The Reformatory. Thank you for speaking to me, Tanana Rift. Thank you for speaking to me. I've enjoyed this conversation. And it just dawned on me, you know, um, listeners, if you like talking to me, I also have a podcast that I do with my husband on living a balanced writer's life at uh, www.lifewritingpodcast.com. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.